0: Well, I gather there may be quite a number here who are uh, uh, first-time visitors tonight. If so, you're especially welcome. I'm not regularly a part of the church here, but I delight in coming uh, a couple of times a year uh, to preach and often in between to talk with folks behind the scenes. And it's a great place to be, so let me encourage you to come regularly if you're around and get stuck in. And let me uh, share with you, they didn't pay me to say that, incidentally. (laughs) Well, not yet, at any rate. (laughs) Uh, Let me uh, ask you, if you've got a Bible, to turn to uh, Matthew chapter 11. It'll come up on the screen, if not, as we read this uh, very curious conversation uh, that Jesus has with the disciples of John the Baptist. First of all, Matthew chapter 11, and we'll start to read at verse 1. When Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. a uh, reed shaken by, uh, by the wind. Uh, what then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in kings' houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet. Yes, I tell you, uh, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you're willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears, let him hear. But to what shall I compare this generation, says Jesus? It's like children sitting in a marketplace and calling to their playmates. We played the flute for you and you didn't dance. We sang a dirge. And you didn't mourn, for John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, he has a demon. (laughs) The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners, yet wisdom is justified by her deeds." Let me ask you a question. Have you ever been disappointed with Jesus? I guess if I asked have you ever been disappointed with the church, you'd probably all say, you bet. (laughs) Any story you can tell about the church letting you down, I can probably match wholesale. I've been part of its leadership for over 40 years. I know it at its worst and at its best. But this is a different question. Have you ever been disappointed with Jesus? The media love it, don't they? When some great Christian leader either goes off the rails or confesses to doubts and a lack of faith. However you measure things, Mother Teresa must have been one of the greatest saints of the 20th century. That uh, feeble little woman who was the saint of the gutters in India, rescuing so many. And after she died, her diaries revealed that she had major struggles with her faith and uh, the fuller picture became uh, evident in the letters that she'd written. She spoke even while she was being honoured and venerated around the world for her sainthood. She spoke of dryness and darkness and loneliness and torture and silence and emptiness and God appearing to be distant. Oh, her belief in God actually never wavered. But her experience of God caused some questions. And there is all the difference in the world, isn't there, between feeling that God is not with you and not believing whether God exists. And uh, here we have a situation where John the Baptist believes certainly in God, but doesn't seem to be able to work out too much about Jesus. And he sends him this question, the question John asks, is, are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else. Jesus, are you really the Messiah? Are you really the Son of God? Are you really the one who is God's agent to bring the world through its crisis moments and bring it to renewal and to salvation? Are you really the one who will release people from captivity and set them free? Or are we mistaken? Behind that very personal question, there lie a number of dimensions that motivated John to ask and to voice these personal doubts. Jesus, are you really him? Or were we mistaken? Should we look for somebody else? First of all, there was the dashed hopes that John began to experience. John, you remember, Jesus' cousin, (coughs) had been down there in the River Jordan confidently claiming that his cousin Jesus was the Messiah if you read another gospel, not Matthew but the opening chapter of uh, John's gospel there in chapter 1 and verse 29 you get John saying as he points to Jesus behold the Lamb of God who's going to take away the sin of the world and then it doesn't seem to be working out as John expected John had said Why, I'm not even worthy to, uh, well, we might say today, clean his shoes. Uh, John says, tie up his sandals. The lowliest job is not lowly enough, as far as I'm concerned, to honor this person who is my cousin, whom I believe is God's agent to transform the world. John had said, when he comes, I baptize you with a bit of water. (laughs) But when he comes, he's going to plunge the church into the Holy Spirit. And everything is going to be different. He's going to baptise you in the Holy Spirit. He's going to be the one who liberates people. And not many months afterwards, John begins to wonder. Because he didn't seem to think that it was happening. At least in the way he thought it should. So John's hopes were dashed. Uh, secondly, of course, John had himself some personal struggles. And maybe that's what gave rise to the question. Where is John when he asks this question? Matthew 11 tells us very clearly. He's in prison. Just imagine being in his shoes if you can't, can. John had been the celebrity in the nation until Jesus came along and took his crowds away. But until then, he had the great audience who traveled travel for miles down into the Jordan Valley to hear him preach. And then as Jesus began to take over, John loses his crowds and he loses his popularity. And then he gets into trouble with the authorities, so he loses his freedom and ends up in prison. And as if that isn't bad enough, He's in a very vulnerable situation and before long he's going to lose his head. There's not much left after that, is there? No wonder he was on the verge of wondering whether he was also going to lose his faith. <laughs> Jesus, are you really the one? Or had I made these great promises only for God to let me down wholesale? Wholesale and for me to pay the price tag personally. There's a third thing going on here, which may perhaps not be so obvious, but it's how Jesus begins eventually to answer John's question. John is making some theological assumptions. Now, you might want to say, well, of course, theology is something that belongs in theological colleges, and... uh, we're not theologians, so we don't make the assumptions. I'm a theologian by trade and background, so I can make the assumptions, but you can't. No, no, let's get this right. Actually, we're all theologians. (laughs) Theologians is only a way of trying to organize and express and make sense of your faith. The question is whether you're a good theologian or a bad theologian. (laughs) whether you're building on solid foundations and constructing reliable theological frameworks on the top of it or not, and what you build your theology on, the assumptions, the foundations, are absolutely vital. And John, the theologian, was building his faith in the Messiah on a set of assumptions. You see, John had expected the Messiah to come in a certain manner, and to take on a certain form. He'd expected the Messiah, in our terms, to be a superhero. He'd be Spider-Man or Rambo or all of them mixed up together, who comes dashing in to save the world and set people free. And he just didn't see that happening in Jesus. John had preached a message of judgment, fire and brimstone. And boy did the Romans need to hear that message of judgment. And certainly those establishment figures who lived up there in the palaces and oppressed the poor and didn't care about the covenant of God. Salvation for John meant God was going to step in and smash them to pieces at long last. They get what they deserved. And Jesus comes along and doesn't seem to be that way. To use the Old Testament Example of Elijah. It's as if John the Baptist was expecting the thunderstorm, the God of earthquakes and of wind and of fire. And he meets in Jesus a still small voice. And he can't be sure that this is the Messiah. If Jesus was the king, And if Jesus was the king who'd come to liberate Israel from their oppressors, if the kingdom of God had arrived in Jesus, then, well, apart from anything else, why, John might have asked, am I in prison? (laughs) Why aren't I out there on the road campaigning with Jesus, celebrating his great victories? Why is it that the Romans are still in power? Why hasn't he led an army by now that's kicked them out so that this occupied territory may be occupied no longer? Why are the corrupt religious leaders of our land still able to be in place? In Zimbabwe tonight, they're still wondering whether Robert Mugabe is going to go. It's not easy to get rid of leaders, is it? But thousands of people poured out onto the streets yesterday in Harare with the army in their support to get rid of a corrupt leader who's ruled them tyrannically for a number of years now. And John the Baptist would have been asking as much realistically about his situation as they're asking in Harare tonight. Where is the liberator who is going to set us free as a nation? I just don't see Jesus doing it. Well, of course, the issue is that he had the wrong expectations. He was making the wrong assumptions. At the heart of what he was doing was to build on the wrong expectations of what the Messiah would do. You always need to ask the right question if you want to get the right answer. The guy who taught me theology as such was a wonderful Irishman with a wonderful, booming voice, and his oratory was absolutely great. His scholarship was renowned. And he'd uh, lecture in the classroom, and you had trouble in those days when you actually hand-wrote your lecture notes trying to keep up with him. And he'd pause to ask, to receive questions from time to time. And you always knew you were in problems. When you asked Mack a question, and he took off his glasses, he put his thumb and his finger all over his lens, so I've no idea how he ever saw anything out of them. And he'd just look at you and say, Ah, bless your heart. And you knew when he said to you, Ah, bless your heart, you'd asked a dumb question <laughs> and you weren't going to get an answer to it. <laughs> now, you need the right information to get the right answer, do, don't you? You know that old story, I come from Devon, so. It's easy to illustrate it that way. Just think of a train going from Plymouth up to Exeter. When the train leaves Plymouth Station, it's got 53 people on it. When it gets to Totnes, nobody gets off, but another 10 people get on. And then it goes up the track to Newton Abbot, and there in Newton Abbot, 10 people do get off, but 16 get on. And in Exeter, when it arrives there, a dozen people get off and 100 people get on. Now tell me... What color are the guard's eyes? (laughs) You haven't got the information to answer it, have you? (laughs) The information you've got doesn't tie up with the question being asked. And John the Baptist is perhaps asking the wrong question because he's got the wrong information. So when he sends his messengers from prison to say to Jesus, Are you the Messiah? Or should we expect somebody else? This is the answer that Jesus gives him. It's there in verses 4 to 6 in the passage in Matthew 11, as we know it. Jesus says to John, look at the evidence. What do you see? Uh, True, it needs interpreting. All evidence does. But let's start, says Jesus, with what you see and hear actually going on. No, you don't see armies. You don't see me at the head of a a load of zealots or a load of terrorists trying to drive out the Romans. What do you see? Uh, Think, says Jesus to John, about what I do, what Jesus does, first of all. What you do see is actually exactly what Isaiah chapter 35 verses 5 and 6 said the Messiah would do. So what do you see? Well, you see the blind receive their sight and the lame walk and the lepers being cleansed and the deaf hearing and the dead being raised up and the poor having good news preached to them. Now you're a good Jew, John. Go back to your Old Testament scriptures as we know them that you should know so well. What did Isaiah say when the exile is over and we've returned home and we've known liberation and we've entered into the new age that God is going to give? What you'll see is deaf people receiving their hearing, blind people receiving their sight. Isn't that exactly what you see Jesus doing in the here and now? Just as the captives were released from Babylon and set free, and that passage in Isaiah speaks about that happening in such a way that the glory of the Lord and the splendor of our God was going to be seen. Don't you see that happening now? And don't you see the glory of the Lord and the splendor of your God at work bringing healing? To the world Jesus took the Jews took this promise of Isaiah to be a, a sign of the age of the Messiah the new age when God would step in and rescue the world and what Jesus does is exactly what Isaiah prophesies he will do but Jesus not only sends back a message saying what Jesus does but Think, too, secondly, about how Jesus does it as part of the answer. Not only does he heal the blind and the lame and the deaf and the lepers and make people whole, but what's the whole style of his ministry? John, you want a ministry, an approach to rescue the world, which is about shock and awe. You're thinking in human terms. You're thinking exactly just as the politicians of our world, let alone their world, would have done. They didn't have intercontinental ballistic missiles. They couldn't send missiles to the other side of the earth. They couldn't launch atomic bombs from North Korea so that they hit America. But scale it down, and in the Roman world, they had the equivalent. (laughs) They had their armies which were disciplined and they had their weapons and they had conquered territory after territory. And John, you're thinking that the only way that God can rescue the world is to match force with force, might with might, military power with military power, violence with violence. But actually that's just not how God works. Think again of what Isaiah was prophesying would happen. Go back to Isaiah, not this time, chapter 35, but chapter 42. It's one of what we call the songs that celebrate the coming of the servant. And in Isaiah 42, the servant who is the Messiah, we read that when he comes, he will bring justice to the nations. But he will not shout or cry out or even raise his voice in the streets. Why, a bruised reed. He won't break a smoldering wick he won't snuff out. He will be characterized not by power and force, but by gentleness and weakness. And in faithfulness, says Isaiah, he will establish his goal. He will bring forth justice. God will put our wrong worlds to right, but not by sending more weapons and arms to sort the situation out. That will only make it worse but choosing an altogether different strategy. How does Jesus do it? By gentleness and meekness and healing. And then Jesus goes further and says about the demands of being a disciple. Look at what Jesus said after the messengers of John had left and he speaks more widely to the crowd. If you go into the army, you can expect to fight. If you go into medicine, you can expect to heal. If you go into accountancy, you can expect to make money. No, sorry, that's another issue. (laughs) (laughs) If you become a Christian, says Jesus, you can expect trouble. Uh, Take this message back to John the Baptist. uh, Jesus then expands on it. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on my account. Blessed is the one who is not offended by me. John, you're asking a really deep and hard question because you thought I was going to come and operate in a certain way, which is not the way God is going to save the world. And so you're disappointed. So you're offended. You think that God has let you down. Well, blessed is the one, truly fulfilled, truly happy truly made prosperous by God. Blessed is the one who doesn't take offence at such things, but gets their head and their heart around. This is the way that God works. So Jesus begins to explain. uh, Are you in it for the long haul, or do you think the kingdom of God is just a quick flick of the fingers and everything is going to be right? Jesus begins to talk about in Matthew's terminology, the kingdom of heaven, and to explain this rule of God and the way in which his kingship is being established in the world. He tells lots of parables, just a couple of chapters further on in Matthew's gospel, Matthew chapter 13, lots of stories about the way this kingdom operates. It operates in a hidden way. It operates in a not a showy way. It operates in a slowly... Uh, permeating the world, uh, changing it bit by bit, almost so that the world cannot see what's going on. Yes, it encounters setbacks, but the reality is that God is at work. People may ridicule it, but God is doing a new thing. People may object to it, but God is the power in the land who's going to bring his Rightful rule about. The way of Jesus may be open to misunderstanding. So blessed are you if you don't misunderstand him or take offense at him. You see, most of us want instant selfie answers. And if God doesn't make us prosperous, If God doesn't make us comfortable, if God doesn't instantly heal this or do that that we want him to do, then we ask the question, are you really the solution that we're looking for, or is there a better answer? Should we go after some other philosophy, some other route? But you see, that's a misunderstanding. The gospel Jesus announced somebody has written was not about getting in touch with your feelings— Or accepting yourself as you really are. It was about taking up your cross and following Jesus because that's the way he goes. And to be a disciple is to follow him. This is tough. And it doesn't stop being tough when you've done it for a year or a decade or a lifetime. No, there's no need to feel disappointment with Jesus because Jesus sets the reality out from the beginning. Become my disciple and you're in for trouble. (laughs) But my kingdom will triumph in unexpected and sure ways at the end. And you see, that's how Jesus develops the conversation. Verses 7 to 19, if you've got it there in your Bible. He begins to talk more fully about the kingdom of God and the kingdom that Jesus launches he takes John the Baptist and puts him as an actor in the bigger story John you're so concerned about yourself and your own reputation and your own celebrity status and your own comfort but actually you have a part in the larger story When Jesus came, his first words were, the kingdom of God is at hand. For so long, the world seems to have been under the kingship of Satan. Uh, An alien ruler had taken over. So indeed, we're living in occupied territory. It's not occupied by the Romans, but it's occupied by a pretend power, the devil, whatever you wish to call him, and his his minions, his armies. And God has not been given his rightful place in this world. That's why it's a mess. So when Jesus announced that his arrival heralded the kingdom of God, Jesus was saying, what's been true in theory all along, Israel, in your worship, you proclaim God as king. Now it's going to become a reality. It's going to start to become a reality. And it's going to grow all over the world until the time when it will reach its culmination point when Jesus Christ returns. So you're part of this great story. And this great story, John, well, it's heralded by you. (laughs) You were the original announcer of it. John the Baptist Strange character in so many ways. You know, I often wonder what his parents made of him. I suspect your parents often wonder what they make of you, too. (laughs) You know, at a long last, they had a kid late on in life. Godly, pious, wonderful, lovely people. And John the Baptist grows up, and what happens? He leaves home, and he goes and lives in the desert by the River Jordan, and uh, he dresses in weird clothes, and he eats even stranger meals. And you can just imagine the neighbors saying to Elizabeth or to Zechariah sometime, hey, what's John doing these days? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, he's down there preaching, attracting crowds, and he's down there wearing strange clothes and eating even stranger meals, and (laughs) He's feeding himself on locusts and and wild honey. Uh, Somehow he gets by and he's offending the rulers and getting into trouble. (laughs) They must have been really proud of him. But Jesus says, hey, you know, this guy, John, my cousin, he was a bridgehead from the old era into the new. He forged the way and cleared the path for the coming of the Messiah. The kingdom doesn't come Till Jesus himself begins his ministry. But John the Baptist prepares the way. That's why Jesus says, he's the greatest of men outside of the kingdom. He lived and ministered in days just before it all started to happen in Jesus. That's why Jesus says, you and I who live afterwards, if we've made Jesus Lord and King... We're greater than John the Baptist. We live in an era of immense privilege that he didn't have. We know the gospel. We understand what God was doing on the cross and through the resurrection. John the Baptist didn't. So he was the greatest of men outside the kingdom, but you're in the kingdom. And, says Jesus... This kingdom was not only heralded by John, but it's opposed and will always be opposed by many. And the opposition to it takes two forms. It will always be controversial. Firstly, Jesus says in verse 12, it will be subject to to violence. One of the most puzzling things he ever said. Is from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been subjected to violence and violent people have been raiding it. It probably means, listen, here is Jesus preaching a message of peace and of goodwill, bringing love into people's lives, bringing wholeness and healing to them. You'd have thought people would have liked that, wouldn't you? <laughs> But actually, they don't. They oppose it. They fight it. They're angry at it. And around the world today, it's still true. Our Christian brothers and sisters are being persecuted for their faith. In India, they're regarded as not being true Indians if they're Christians, because to be a true Indian, you have to be a Christian, uh, a Hindu. And in some areas of the world, to be a Christian means that uh, extreme <coughs> Islamicists will persecute you and torture you and make you suffer. It's the weirdest thing that this wonderful message demonstrated by Jesus is subjected to violence. You and I live in very comfortable surroundings. The most that we might expect is that maybe somebody will say something a bit uncomfortable to us. (laughs) Or maybe we might face some discrimination in the job market. But violence has marked the kingdom of God down the years. It's not surprising in one way, because what happened to Jesus? He was subject to violence. The kingdom came in not just as he preached it and as he healed people, but the kingdom came in most of all as he was crucified himself on a cross. And that cross marks all our Christian discipleship. So this kingdom is to be opposed by many, subjected to violence but also subjected to argument. Aren't people Perverse. That's what Jesus says in verses 16 to 19. You can never win when you're a religious leader. (laughs) The church can never win. If you say one thing, you should have said the opposite. If you say the other thing, you should have said the first thing. That's what Jesus is saying here. It's ridiculous, isn't it? John the Baptist came as an ascetic. He preached a dour message of judgment Doom laden, called people to sacrifice their normal way of life, to live in these restricted ways. And you all said he's bonkers. <laughs> so I come and I have something to celebrate the Messiah. I'm leading and preaching a message which spreads happiness, brings healing to people. I party, I eat. The Gospels are full of parties and eating. And I do so with the sort of people who are not respectable that you'd never find in church on a Sunday. And what happens, rather than saying, well, he's a welcome difference from John the Baptist, you know, they complained about John because he was too dour. They complain about Jesus because he's too happy. (laughs) You can't win. That's the way it's always going to be. Satan always tricks people into being unbelieving complainers, whatever they face. That's life. Ah, but Jesus says just a final little phrase. Wisdom is proved right by her deeds. Wisdom is justified by her deeds. What on earth does he mean? Well, if he was writing in more contemporary English, (laughs) or speaking rather in more contemporary English, He'd simply say, "The proof of the pudding is in the eating." Come and follow Jesus. Come and be a disciple. Yes, risk the opposition, risk the apparent disappointment. Learn how radically different God's way is than the way of the world, and you'll discover that it's the real thing, not a fake. A long term radical solution, not a short term sticking plaster. God's real method of establishing his just and righteous rule again and bringing the world to healing. So Jesus is ushering in God's extraordinary counterintuitive kingdom. John's struggling to understand it because he's asking the wrong question and judging Jesus by the wrong criteria. Jesus is so different than he expected that he's languishing there not only in chains but in self pity, preoccupied with his own agendas. No, no, don't fall into the trap that John the Baptist did as he reflected on Jesus. The revolution has actually begun with Jesus. A revolution that the world doesn't often see, that seems to be hidden, and when it does see it, it's sometimes opposed because God's countercultural kingdom of love and of peace operates in such a different way. And Jesus wants to recruit you tonight to fight the cause of the kingdom, not with weapons but with true, honest discipleship that pays the cost when necessary. You are not called, if you're a Christian, to engage in a religious selfie experience when you're just taking pictures all the time of how happy and wonderful you are. There will be moments in life when that happens, (laughs) but you're called to a radical and tough discipleship that understands how God works in a totally different language than the language of the world. And he calls you to join in that revolution and, if necessary, to pay the cost. So are you still keen to be a Christian? (laughs) Still keen to be a disciple? (laughs) Have you really understood? Well, blessed are you if you don't take offense at Jesus. Amen.